When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. I went into a free fall emotionally. For 12 years, I loved basketball and it loved me back. It was like a marriage. We had great times together. We laughed, we cried, we won, we lost. We traveled together, we grew together. Matt Dougherty was a basketball player. That was my identity and I liked it. It felt good. I was proud of that identity. All I ever wanted to be was a basketball player. Now I was being told I wasn't good enough. My basketball career was over. I felt betrayed. Basketball turned its back on me. What I am narrating is from chapter four called Heartbreak from a wonderful book I recently read called Rebound from Pain to Passion. The author who was on our show today is named Matt and to be able to bring Matt on to me is an honor and a pleasure. We do a lot of similar things, but the way that we got here was completely different because when Matt wrote this book called Rebound, this was a book to me that was about three things. Number one, it was about living your dream. Number two, it was about success, failure, and disappointment wrapped into one. But the best part of this book, it was about redemption and forgiveness. It is a pleasure to welcome Matt Dougherty to a climb to the top. Matt, welcome to the show. Oh, thank you so much, Chuck. And, um, you know, as you were reading those words out of the book, I started to get a little emotional, um, you know, because that's how I felt. And I still feel it, it was a relationship. Um, I loved the game. The game loved me back for about 12 years, <laughs> for about 12 years. And well, wanted a divorce. Yeah. Well, the, the interesting part is the way that you related what, who you were, what you were, and what you did was so emotionally laden in the wonder that you had to live this dream. Every kid on a basketball court, court and you described it when you were a kid playing pickup basketball on, on, in Fresh Meadow or you know, in, in, in a park on Long Island, every kid thinks about sinking that last shot. But you became a freshman on a varsity team, which hardly ever happens at Holy Trinity High School, and are recruited to the University of North Carolina. Matt, I can think of 100 million kids that wish they had that, and you were one of them. How did that feel back then? It, it was, I was blessed. I, I, was, I was blessed with good family, good coaches, the ethos of the park, um, in East Meadow, mentors, Bob McKillop, Dick Zeitler, the Coleman brothers, all, all influenced, influenced me as coaches, um, Gus Alfieri. I envisioned myself being six, seven, playing like Rick Barry. And, and, <laughs> For those and, that may not know, he played on, being, <laughs> on the Nets. <laughs> yeah, Rick Barry was a great player and, and, and a Hall of Fame player. And I, ironically, I've, I've gotten to know Rick. Um, and everything I dreamed about, I worked for was coming true. Right. 
it was pretty magical, very exciting. Um, it was my passion, it was my obsession, and things were falling in line. I mean, from playing varsity as a freshman to winning a state championship, to being an All-American, to being recruited by North Carolina. And it to was play, all to, coming. To, to play in the backcourt with this guy who showed up named Mike Jordan, who became Michael Jordan. Yeah. And the story, though, to me, Matt, as I read the book, I, I certainly loved and admired, and I love Michael Jordan and the documentary that, that came out about his team. The story wasn't that, though. The story was you were drafted by the Cleveland Cavaliers. You were in the same ship, so to speak, as these incredible players, James Worthy, Michael Jordan, the, Matt, uh, all the people that you listed throughout the course of the book. You were on that path until that path decided it didn't want you. You went to Kidder Peabody to sell bonds and you were miserable. This was, a this was the start of the book to me because Matt, what you showed in this book was a vulnerability and a courage. I really find, rarely find in many of the coaches that I work with, they, they have stories, but they don't put it out there like you did. Is this book, in fact, I want to hold it up for our audience who's listening. I encourage everybody to read this. I loved it. And I hacked it up into a billion pieces because there were so many nuggets here as Matt calls nuggets. But is this the book you intended to write? Yes, I think it was, you know, and, and uh, I think a couple of things. I intended to write it because I wanted people, you know, I'm a teacher, I'm a coach. You're a teacher, you're a coach. So you have this desire to share right um and, and it's kind of burning inside like you know if, if if i was walking by a park and i saw kids playing basketball like i would go over and try to help them with their jump shot like i couldn't not not <laughs> right. coach, right? Hey, let me help you out there <laughs> and, yeah 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 and, and, and so um i had this inside me i'm like you know what if I can help someone avoid the landmines I stepped on, right. one person, it's worth it. And what I found through the book was um, it was therapeutic for me right. to get it out on paper yeah. because I'd never really got it out on paper before. I, I've, I've had conversations, but to get it out there for the world to see or whoever wanted to see it uh, was therapeutic that they got to just kind of see my story and at least part of it. And um, it, it, it really um, gave me a piece. And now when you get feedback, especially from people like you, Chuck, who's very accomplished and has read books, written books, is in the coaching industry, for you to take the time to read it, one, two, give me positive feedback and then put me on your podcast, uh, it's something I'm very proud of, and it, it feels it feels good because I hadn't had this feeling in a long time. Well, well, Matt, let let me say I I I I read the book. I didn't just love the book; I felt the book. And the reason I felt the book is is many of us in the coaching business who write are the thing we do. It there's an autobiographical consideration. But as I read yours, it reminded me very much of the Winston Churchill quote 
Success is going from failure to failure without a loss of enthusiasm. You quoted a lot of great leaders in the book, but it was always ringing in my ear. My goodness, what a courageous book. When you set out, and I appreciate it was cathartic, did you set out to put that amount of candor and vulnerability into the book? Uh, that's me, Chuck. Um, that's just the way I am. Right. I'm Irish Catholic from Long Island. And, you know, we're emotional family. And, you know, you tell the truth. I mean, the truth comes pouring out. And I'm, I'm, I'm authentic. I'm genuine. Um, that's the way my mom and dad were. That's uh, where my family is. Um, I only know one way. Like, as we say, in, I'm a Vistage chair, uh, executive coach. And we talk about in Vistage with our peer advisory group to play all out. Like, I play all out. Like, if I'm playing basketball, I'm playing all out. If there's a score, you know, if, if you're going to keep score, I'm going to play all out. Like, I, I don't know. It's either all or nothing. My wife says it with me. You're either all in or not in. No, so I if I'm going to do it, I'm going to be all in. Well, you showed great conviction in the book. And I want to get to a few things because what I want to really lay down are the lessons that you 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 proffer here because they were so genuine, so authentic. But I want to get to some of the sequence for our guests that don't know you. Even though you had been drafted into basketball, you went to Wall Street for a few years. You hate it. You hated it. You were, if I remember correctly, you were broadcasting at Davidson College for some games. And next thing you know, they hired you and you're leaving Wall Street. That's, that's to me, the second transition. The first transition is the recognition. I'm not making it to the pros. The second one is I'm doing what I hate. And then it all changed. Describe that transition and let's take this to the next place. Well, there, there's a, a, a part in there that I don't talk about, that I will talk about in the future. Uh, I have it in my mind for a book, but I'll say it here. Um, I'm an alcoholic, okay? If we're, we're, we're gonna talk about, we're gonna talk about like playing all out and being vulnerable. By the way, a friend of mine who was on the recent webcast that you joined, uh, Brian Moran, Yep. He told me, he said he had a great line. He said, vulnerability is the new invincibility. Yeah, you know, Brene and, Brown put it all out there and made it hip. Yeah. So Brene Brown did. Okay. So, yeah. so, um, so I'm working on wall street and I'm not happy. I'm drinking a lot. You know, in college, it was kind of fun and cool and it was a thing to do, but then all of a sudden you're 26 and, I wake up on a porch in New Jersey in Manilokan. Don't know where I am. And I'm like, this isn't good. And uh, I, go to a, 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 I go to a therapist and she tells me, and this is on the west side of Manhattan. I lived on 96 of Broadway. She says, you have the symptoms of a chronic alcoholic. This was in like 1988-ish, 89. And I'm thinking, so you didn't say I'm an alcoholic. You said I have the symptoms of an alcoholic, right? So I'm, I'm, I'm trying to manipulate the words and thinking, you know, how could I stop drinking? Like, that's part of my social life, like my friends. And I stopped drinking right there. I hadn't had a drink in over 30 years. Hmm. 11 years from that day, Chuck, I became the head coach, not from that day, but 11 years from that point. 11 years later, I was the head coach at North at Notre Dame. 
and I take that energy that I put into drinking and the sorrow and put that energy to better use and focus. And that's when I quit my job, moved to North Carolina, thought I was going to get in the real estate business, got into coaching and back. I mean, I, I was where I wanted to be as a coach, kind of like I was as a player. I didn't want to do anything else. I remember a friend of mine, we were at his house in Kansas. I was an assistant in Kansas and the lottery was up to some crazy number, let's say a hundred million dollars. And we we're going around and saying, well, what would you do if you won the lottery? And people would say, I'd quit my job. I'd do this. I'd quit my job. I'd do that. And I said, I'd still coach. Right. So I knew I was where I was supposed to be. And I haven't had that feeling again since I was coaching till now. And it's such a cool feeling, Chuck. Ooh. And I'm, I'm happy to share that with you on your, your, your podcast. Well, first, Matt, let me thank you for sharing that that you're an alcoholic, uh, there's a sequel here, and I'd like to help you if I can to write it. But I think you just demonstrated, you're, you, you put it all out there and to, to give us that kind of honesty. I, I know every inch of your book and I never would have guessed that because you, di you didn't foreshadow that. You didn't give us the inkling because you were fighting through all of those things that you needed to climb your own mountain. So thank you very much, I appreciate that. Um, I'd like to save all of that when I'm have you on my podcast after you write your sequel, <laughs> <Okay>. <laughs> whatever, because there's so many other good things and we don't have an unlimited of time um, before I get into and I want to switch from Notre Dame to UNC because that was a massive transition and transformation about what happened because that, that to me was the story that led to redemption and forgiveness. I'll get there in just a minute. You're the name of the book rebound from pain to passion. It, I, I cannot think of a better title that sums up this book. And I am curious from one author to another, did this name emerge in seconds or did this simmer and eventually come to you? Um, it evolved, but it evolved pretty quickly. Yeah. You know, um, John Gordon's a friend of mine. And, and a mentor, uh, another Long Islander, by the way. Okay. And, um, you know, I was asking him for ideas and, and, and we threw out different things. And this was the one that just kind of stuck. It made sense from uh, tying in basketball with the rebounding in basketball to rebounding in life. Right. And, and uh, from pain, the pain of losing my job. Yeah. because I was considered a poor leader to leadership becoming my passion. Good. And I want to get so, to that. Let, let me describe the situation, Matt. And I also want to quote your mom because you credit your mom and dad as they were, they were foundational to your growth. I, I want to tell our listeners, Matt became the head coach of, of, of a college that every Catholic kid, and I can say this because I'm one of them. Every Catholic kid wants to go to Notre Dame and they either want to play football, basketball. It doesn't matter. They just want to be there. Matt, takes the head coach, I won't describe all the details, it was written in the book, and he becomes a coach in Notre Dame, and his mother says to him, my goodness, the coach in Notre Dame, that is second only if you had told me you were going to become a priest, and then there's an exclamation point, and I was hysterical, because I, I, I grew up with Catholic kids, and every one of them wanted their, every mom wanted their kid to be a priest, and if you can't be the priest, be the coach in Notre Dame, what was that moment like, I, I, bring us to your mom, what, what did that feel like? Mary Cleary Darty from the Bronx <laughs> in New York. Yeah. Uh, salt of the earth. Just uh, 
just good to the bone. Yeah. And, and, uh, that was her. Like, that was like, uh, we're walking on campus the day of the press conference. She sees the golden dome. She grabs my arm and says basically what you just said. She said, Matthew, if you couldn't be a Catholic priest, being the head coach at Notre Dame is a close second. That's pretty good. <laughs> yeah. And she meant it. She meant it. And, um, and you know, it wasn't sarcastic. It wasn't a joke. Oh, it's beautiful. And I remember I was in fourth grade. I came home. I told her I wanted to be an altar boy. And she's thinking, oh, my son's going to be a priest. And the next <laughs> breath, I said, yeah, mom, get tips for weddings and funerals. Right. <laughs> I feel you on that. Me too. It's not that I look forward to the funerals, but I remember at West Point, I served many funerals because I was an altar boy during the Vietnam War. But also many of the cadets got married when they graduated and they got married right out of college because many of them were going to go off to war. And I remember getting five bucks, 10 bucks in this envelope. I couldn't wait to serve. And as I was reading your story, I completely <laughs> related, related that. But let me get to the Notre Dame story because this is where I don't want to say it's where Rebound begins. Rebound began at the space between Matt's graduation from the University of North Carolina and his being drafted in the sixth round by the Cleveland Cavaliers, who were the worst team in basketball. But the interesting part, Matt transitions to Wall Street, doesn't like it. One thing led to another. He's at Notre Dame doing well. I want to relate one story before I get to it. Matt walked into the locker room and Matt in his book described, I see everything through the eyes of a prospect. Matt, your emotional intelligence was on display well before you even knew what it was. I want you to describe, you walk into this Notre Dame, the place that everyone aspires to, and it wasn't what you expected, but there was a very important implication here. Can you describe that, please? Yeah, uh, thank you. Well, you and I grow up and you think of Notre Dame and you think of the grandeur and the, the you know, the, the dome and the beautiful campus, but I'd never been on the campus. And when I interviewed, I didn't, didn't go to the campus. So I didn't go to the campus till I took the job. <clears throat> and then I saw, you, you see the warts, right? It's like buying a house. You know, you go through the walkthrough, it looks nice, but then you got to live in it and you realize, oh my gosh, you know, the, the AC doesn't work that well, or, you know, the, there's, a, there's, a, there's a crack in the door. And so when I saw the locker room, um, the way it was, um, I was like, oh, uh-oh, uh, this is not good because you have to recruit to that, you know? And I knew what the competition had. And so things had to change. And the locker room was very symbolic of the, the depths that the program had fallen. Right. So it was really a metaphor as, as this is an expression of who we are. And if it's underwhelming to a prospect that's being wooed by Duke in North Carolina, and all of a sudden you had to make adjustments. So you made that adjustment. But the interesting part of the story, in spite of, of an incredible offer to stay, there was something in the back of your mind that was rebounding you back to the state of North Carolina. Explain what you felt to tell Notre Dame no thank you because you had what you felt was a higher cause by which you already demonstrated your emotional commitment and investment in North Carolina. What happened here? Big part of this story. It, it was very difficult, uh, Chuck. I mean, first of all, it was a bad timing. It was the middle of July, which 
most college basketball coaches get new jobs in February, March, or April. Right. <clears throat> so for the coach at North Carolina, Bill Guthridge, to resign in July, June was bad, bad timing. I was ready to stay at Notre Dame. I love Notre Dame. I, I love Kevin White, the athletic director who went on to be the AD at Duke, ironically. Right. Um, we were building something. I, I love the kids. I love the I love the community. I was proud to wear Notre Dame on my chest and we had a good first year. Um, but I grew up in the Carolina family. You know, we talk about cultures in business, right? Yeah. Developing a culture. No one, I quote coach Smith all the time from North Carolina because he knew how to intentionally build a world-class culture. And I was a part of that. And we talk about the Carolina way the Carolina family and I was part of that family and so when some other coaches like Roy Williams turned the job down mm -hmm. coach Smith smart he's a good recruiter he, he got Michael Jordan to call me and Michael said you know if you don't take the job coach Smith will probably go outside the family and hire he mentioned Rick Majerus who was the head coach at Utah I believe at the time right and right then I said to myself I'm taking the job I can't let somebody outside our family take this job because they wouldn't understand what it means to be in that position. Let me stop there for just a second, because this is an incredibly pivotal point of deciding from the heart rather than deciding from the mind. This was an emotionally right. laden decision. If you were That's coaching right. yourself, bring us back to that moment. If you were coaching yourself, what would you have said to yourself knowing what you know now? Well, I, I, I quote Tim Kite a lot. Tim is a, a, a coach at a Columbus, who, who Ohio, and he's a good follow on Twitter. He talks about E plus R equals O, where E is the event, R is your reaction, and O is the outcome. Right. And the only thing we control is the R. Right. Okay? And your biggest strength your biggest weakness. My biggest strength is I'm emotional. I'm fiery. I'm intense. I'm driven. My biggest weakness, I'm emotional. emotional fire, intense, intense. <laughs> well put. <laughs> yeah. So, so they pushed the hot buttons. Right. And what I should have done is tap the brakes. Right. And I talk about having a personal board of directors. Yes. And I mentioned that in the book. You did. And the I like problem it. was my personal board of directors was Dean Smith, Roy Williams. <laughs> the people you know, in the family. They were people in the family right so where can i go to get unbiased input on a critical decision that was happening too fast it was like in college athletics there's a job opening and sometimes within 48 hours it's filled he who hesitates doesn't get the job you know, it's in the middle of a recruiting period. I got the pressure from Notre Dame to stay. Should I go? Should I stay? Right. And so I think what I should have done is tap the brakes, slow down. I mean, heck, Roy Williams took a week to turn the job down. Right. I could have taken a week to turn the job down, right. but I was but in the middle didn't. of a recruiting period. Right. I was, I was in the middle of a recruiting period. And, and, uh, you know, I had to make up ground in recruiting either at Notre Dame or 
North Carolina. It was July 11th when I finally took the job. Wow. And the recruiting season was going to start in two months or three months. You know, right. I went to Syracuse. I remember the rhythm of, of, of the scheduling. You, you needed four or five months to get your team ready. Yeah. And, and you now, need to, being, you need to recruit and, and, right. you know, recruiting is the lifeblood. So if I had to give myself advice, if I was my executive coach, right. Slow down. Yeah. Slow down. You got a good thing here. Mm-hmm. you got a good thing here. You don't have to take this job. You don't owe them anything. Right. What you need to do. And a friend of mine, John Black says this. I talked to John today. He was kind of a mentor for me. Now mm-hmm. he went to North Carolina. So he, he wanted, you know, Close but, to the family. Yeah, but but he, he, he would say, put a picture of your family on your desk and every right. decision you make is in their best interest. And you noted that in the book. It was a really cool expression of your guidepost. Yep. And so yet, Chuck, it's North Carolina. My wife's from North Carolina. It's right. the University of North Carolina. It's the best, one of the best jobs in all the sports. Right. How can you not? Then, how can I not? And then I, I didn't, I, I never liked to live with regrets. And I didn't want to be coaching at Notre Dame and somebody else is coaching at North Carolina. And I'm saying I should have taken that job. Right. No, I understand. So that. I said, what's the worst thing that can happen? I always look at decisions. What's the best thing that can happen? Yeah. I can win a lot of championships. Right. What's the worst thing that happened? I get fired and I retired in North Carolina. We're in North Carolina. Get another good job. Right. Well, I didn't really count on the worst thing happening being worse than the thing that I thought would happen. Yeah, It, it turned out worse. In fact, I, I want to read a passage from the book because anyone who picks up the book, and I encourage you to do so, you will get a lot of the detail as to the twists and turns and what happened here. But this, this was the passage that describes Matt's, what I think was the turn of Matt becoming the leader who he has become today. Matt, if you don't mind, and sure. I quote, I made drastic changes to the Carolina program upon my arrival that were not well received. I was considered the bad guy. I made the changes I believed were necessary to build a foundation of success. Unfortunately, I didn't get to reap any of the awards of my efforts. Unquote. Matt, this came back Later on in your book, when you talked about respect for the past, respect for the legacy, describe what happened here and, and how the lessons you learned, even though it was all well-intentioned, there were some dependencies you hadn't quite either respected or counted on as to the consequence of those changes. Wow. A lot to, lot to unpack. Yeah. Um, First of all, I anticipated some of the issues, and, and, and it was three questions that I wanted answered when I took the job, and I asked the athletic director, is it my program to run, or will I, Dean Smith run it through me, because Coach Smith was still around, right. and, and coming, coming to the office, coming to the building. Right, his and presence the, was made felt in the book. Right, and, and, and you know, the arena is the Dean E. Smith arena, right? Yep. Center. Yep. Second, can I bring my staff with me? And I said to the athletic director, if I can't bring my staff, I won't take the job. I'll stay at Notre Dame because I don't want to put them out in the cold, especially 
in July, which is a tough time to get a job. And then the third thing I wanted them to know was my first year, we could be good because we have good returning players. My second year will be bad because we, there's not much in the pipeline. Right. And then third year would be rebuilding. Are you tough enough to get through that with me? Right. So you set and those expectations. Was, so it was yes, yes, yes. Mm-hmm. And Coach Smith even said, it's your program running how you see fit. Now, I didn't ask him about, can I bring my staff with me? But I did ask the athletic director. So I'm a very literal person, Chuck. And this is your strengths, your weakness. My strength is I'm literal. You tell me you're going to be there at 10 o'clock. You're going to be there at 10 o'clock. You tell me you're going to deliver the package next Monday. You're going to deliver the package next Monday. So I'm told it's my program. I can bring my assistants and they understand the fact that we're gonna go through a little dip in performance. But that I was being recruited at the time. Like, like I didn't hear what wasn't being said. <laughs> That's a good one. I didn't, let me repeat that to, to all of our listeners and we'll get back to you, Matt. I did not hear what wasn't being said very well put thank you you know and 50 percent of communication is body language 35 percent tone seven percent words i wasn't i wasn't good at reading but you know here i have the person i trusted more than most people in my life except probably my parents and my wife at the time was dean smith telling me it's your program runner how you see fit right so i did but that's not what he wanted. Or maybe I ran it too, too much as my program. And, and, and that was the lack of emotional intelligence on my part, a lack of awareness, um, going too fast. But I couldn't, I was in the left lane, man, in the HOV lane. I couldn't get over to the right lane. There was no time to get over to the right lane. Right. Well, you didn't have time, but I think that there was a very big lesson here that as I read it, looking at from a leadership lens, when you're walking into a place that had established an incredible reputation and legacy of success, even though you were told, Matt, it's yours, what I pulled out of this is you were looking at the, or you were not, they had a past that they held on to about the Carolina way. Your strength said, it's the Carolina way, I'm in the Carolina family. So you went in there and you did a little bit of your way, not respectful necessarily for the Carolina way because even you changed who was gonna be a season ticket holder, God forbid. Like, what's the matter with you, Matt? How can you go in there, look at all the success? Who the hell are you to come in and to completely change things upside down? I could understand it if we were a failure, we were anything but were you too fast to see that? I was too fast to see that. I think they, there's a combination of things. I think they were blind to the soft foundation that was now under their feet. Right. The program was getting a little soft. Right. They, 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 it was a little outdated from a facility standpoint, from a conditioning standpoint, from a recruiting standpoint. And they were a little blind to that. 
I was very aware of it. So I, I saw this, the, that the culture needed to be shaken up. They were getting ready to hire Roy Williams. Roy Williams is a fiery guy. Right. I worked for Roy Williams for seven years. Right, in Kansas. So I'm like, right. okay, you want Roy, you can't get Roy, but you can get me, which is a younger version, intense, driven. And I want to slip but in good at math. Drastic. I need to get that in there. You're good at math. He was good at math. All of you yeah, good coaches good are good at math. You yeah, engineer yeah, and yeah. design how you play basketball. I, yeah. I, it was in the book. And I, I to all you aspiring basketball coaches, if you're good at math, you got a shot. <laughs> yeah. Coach Smith was a math, math major. Bill Guthridge, I think Eddie Fogler. Um, <laughs> right. I wasn't a math major. But you were good in math. <laughs> I got a 98, 98 on the region. Sister John Rose. Calculus. <laughs> We're giving Sister John Rose a plug here because my wife, Fran, speaks often of Sister John Rose and what a great teacher she was. So, but I want to get to this, Matt. So now you were you were learning your lessons a very hard way from a place that was reputed to be a number one place. My goodness. How did it feel as you were? It came to you, oh my God, this isn't working well. What was in Matt's heart? Because you called it heartbreak. That was your chapter. Yeah, it, 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 I felt abandoned. Right. I felt like the ship was sinking right. and uh, no one was helping me bail water. Right. Um, well, your second betrayal, because you felt betrayed when you didn't suit up for the Cleveland Cavaliers. And now on a more personal level, you felt betrayed because, hey, Matt, this is your program. Mm, maybe it's not. Yeah. And, 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 you know, then you think, you, you start to doubt yourself. Like, what, what, what was I thinking? Like, how foolish was I? How stupid am I um, that I took this job or, or, once I took it, I managed, didn't manage it more wisely. Um, and because we all wear masks, right? And I wear three masks, uh, a tough guy mask, a smart guy mask, and I've got my stuff together mask. And so now I wasn't as smart as I thought. And my toughness was really being challenged. And, you know, I didn't have my stuff together because things were starting to fall apart. Um, you know, I had secretaries that were four secretaries that had been there an average of 20 years apiece. Internally, there was, you, you could just sense there was some back talk. I mean, Michael Jordan called me. He told me that, you know, people are saying things and it's coming from your office. Mm -hmm. And um, that's, not, that's not a comfortable feeling. You know, what's the saying that uh, you'd rather have a thousand enemies outside your tent than one, one inside your tent? Yeah. I had a couple inside my tent. Yeah. No, and I, and I, I felt your pain as I was reading through it. But, and and, and uh, please read the book. You'll, you'll get the rest of the story. But here was the best part. Well, they're all parts of the book were good. But here's what I loved about that transition into what was called the growth zone, the final chapter. Matt laid down. It was really, I don't want to say it's a Ten Commandments the way we think of it biblically, but I felt a little bit of that because it wasn't just a list of here's what I learned, here's what you can learn. I want to first preface this with Matt learning the art and science of emotional intelligence, which as my listeners know is very near and dear to my heart because it's what I do in my practice and what I teach. 
But Matt, this was a wonderful culmination of the growth zone because you, you had an expression that I really resonated before we go into the very last part. And I want to finish with, I'm going to hold it off for just a second, with something you call Stebit, the six no's of leadership. And I thought this was really good, especially for anyone emerging. It, it helps you to redefine what it means to be smart. And that's what you did in this book, Matt. You help people redefine it. It wasn't about your grades, your 98. It was about your Stebit. I loved this part. Talk to us about this. Well, I appreciate it. Um, one thing about being a coach, you have to be creative in, in teaching. And, and I know myself that, you know, what sticks? Well, why your phone number is three and four digits long? Because you can only remember three and four things, right? So that's why I think core values should be three and four things long. Uh, and then create, create an acronym out of it. So, you know, Stevitt is six things long. So I kind of broke my own rule, but I created a, a three. To two threes. That's how I saw it. Because <laughs> <laughs> I wrote, I, one of my chapters, Matt, is called the rule of three in my book. The rule of three, snap, crackle, pop, ABC. Stevitt, I saw S-T-E, pause for dramatic effect, V-I-T. Explain some of that foundation. Well, I appreciate it. I think I made up a story because stories stick, right? The parables in the Bible, stories stick. And, and that's something I learned in my leadership training. Um, so, uh, Stebbett, I, was, I made up a story about a basketball player that I recruited from Eastern Europe named Stebbett. And the S stands for self. Mm-hmm. You've got to know yourself. If you're going to lead others, you have to know yourself. And and I didn't know myself. Right. Um, and then you got to know your team. You know, uh, if you if you go by different assessments, and I know we talk a lot about assessments on our Rebound Live web, webcast. Yeah. Um, you know, but if you go by the DISC assessment, seventy nine percent, sixty nine percent of the population are S's. Steady. Right. They don't steady. like change. Right. I like change. I know <laughs> you're good at it. <laughs> And so now I'm going in. So basically, mathematically, almost seven out of 10 people don't like change that I'm dealing with on average. And yet I'm going in driving change and asking them to follow. But it's like a a boat going through the water. And in my wake, there's people drowning because they can't keep it. I saw your North Carolina experience. You didn't just drive, you provoked change. And I mean that in both a positive and negative way. It was provoked. You poked the bear. Not that it was a sleeping bear. It was yours to change, but there are ways to change and ways not to to win people to your cause because you weren't getting buy-in. You you just said, hey, I'm bringing in all my people and I'm just going to do it and it's my program. Whoa, buy-in. And I, I felt that throughout the fiber of your book, you need to get buy-in to your players, to your assistants, to your staff. Did I have that right? Yes. Well, that's where I didn't manage change well. I think it happened too fast. And uh, uh, so, you know, you got to, that's where the E instead of it, you got to know your environment. Right. So at Notre, Notre Dame, they welcome change. So anything I did, they were like, oh my gosh, I can't believe you cut down that tree. That tree's been a, <laughs> an eyesore forever. You know, um, you know, to where, oh, my gosh, he took down a pitcher in in the lot. He changed the the lobby at North Carolina. Shame on him. You know, Um, he put up a picture of Michael Jordan with him in the background. 
He's putting up pictures of himself. That's what they were saying. So you got to know your environment. Then you got to know your vision and, and sell your vision. Then you got to know your industry, obviously. And then you got to mine for the truth. And that's the second T in Stebbett. And I think that's something leaders don't do really well. They want, they don't know themselves and they don't know the truth. They don't mine for the truth and create an environment where the truth will surface up as fast as possible. Because if you don't manage the truth, the truth will manage you right out the door like it did me in 2003. Yeah. And, and then I want to get to one final part. And, and Matt, I'm speaking to, I think most of us that grew up in a Catholic model, we grew up with a guidepost of a guy named Jesus. And what we learned about in your very last chapter, Pact to Wallop, and it was called forgiveness. And it was both self-forgiveness and forgiving of others. First, thank you for ending that way. I thought it was an absolutely powerful, compelling way after all of this and all of the resentment and the contempt that you may have held for people. You pulled the Nelson Mandela and said, I'm not going to put all of this energy into that. Talk to us about how you decided to end this book and why forgiveness was the final chapter. Yeah, no, thank you. Um, I think, you know, I, I, jo I joke, say like, I'm a, I'm a, average Christian, right? Like I'd, I'd like to be a better Christian, but a friend of mine who went to seminary um, said, you know, there's no degrees of Christianity. You're either a Christian or you're not, right? So I'm like, uh, okay, well, I'd give myself on a five-star scale of three in Christianity, but when you read through the Bible, and I need to do a better job of reading through it, forgiveness is all over the Bible. Yeah. And yet, I think it's the hardest thing to put into practice. But really, it's the most selfish thing, because if you truly forgive somebody, it doesn't mean you have to forget. But realize, like on the cross, Jesus forgave those that, that crucified him. I mean, I mean, Jesus is real. He was real. He walked this earth. He's on the cross, and he forgives those people. I'm like, he could forgive those people. Well, I could forgive the people that I think betrayed me. I think betrayed me. I don't have hard evidence, but I think they did. And then more important, as importantly, I need to forgive myself. And because I was, had some negative self-talk, like what an idiot. How could you, like, even when you were talking about me making the changes to the staff and like, I'm cringing, like, what an idiot. How come I didn't see that? Like, how dumb was I? And again, I wear that mask like I'm a smart guy and I've got my stuff together mask. Well, I'm taking those masks off and putting them on the hook. Like, that's kind of dumb. You know, you could chalk it up to inexperience, stupidity. It was a dumb move. There's no manual, though. Not many people were in that position before. It was rushed. So that's why I wrote the book. I wanted people to avoid the landmines that I stepped on, but the forgiveness part, forgiving yourself. When I forgave other people, I had the best night's sleep I ever did. Then I need to forgive myself. And really, if you can't forgive yourself, it's a matter of pride. Like who the hell do you think you are that you can't make mistakes? that you can't, that you should have navigated that field, that landmine, that minefield, 
better than you did. Who do you think you are? That, that's real arrogance. So I think by forgiving myself, I recognized I'm flawed, not as smart, not as tough, don't have my stuff together. Those three masks I'm taking off, putting on the hook and vulnerability, as Brene Brown said, is the new invincibility. People can lean into that. People like to lean into imperfection because none of us are perfect. Indeed. Well, the, the book was wonderful. And let's now switch to the great things that you're doing now. And for those of who are coming in and watching on YouTube, you notice the backdrop, the Dougherty coaching practice with the expression, his mantra, learn and grow. Matt, what are you doing now? Well, <laughs> where do wanna, we find you? I want to be like you when I grow up, Chuck. Um, <laughs> no, no, no. You know, I'm an executive coach. Yeah. Um, I found the helpful executive coaching helpful when I started coaching at North Carolina and right. used it more and more as I went through my coaching career. Yeah. Um, so I'm an executive coach with Vistage. I, I also run some through my own practice, the Doherty coaching practice. Mm -hmm. uh, you can find me on coachmattdoherty.com. Okay. Um, I, I, Love being a Vistage chair. Vistage is one of the oldest executive coaching organizations in the country because I feel like I'm helping people. My mission, you know, companies have a core values and a mission statement. My core values are respect, trust, commitment, positivity, RTCP, only four, not five. <laughs> Don't go to five. We won't remember the fifth. <laughs> won't remember the fifth. And my mission statement, simple, one sentence, repeatable, livable, uh, to make a positive impact on the lives of people I meet and the groups I work with. That's simple. So when I do a corporate talk, I want to make an impact. I want people to walk away with at least one nugget that they could put to work in their business or, and or their life, their family. And uh, the executive coaching, just to see people, as it says over my head, learn and grow but I'm learning and growing at the same time. Um, I'm a lifelong learner. So that's why I like to be on your shows, Chuck. I like, to, I like to have you on my Rebound Live webcast because when you drop a nugget, I'm like, oh my gosh, that's so good. I'm gonna use that in my practice. Because all this is what I did as a college basketball coach. Yeah. We'd watch films of other clinics. We'd go to clinics. We'd ask questions. I'd pick the brains of Dean Smith, Larry Brown, Bobby Knight, Roy Williams. I try to incorporate that into my practice as a basketball coach. It's the same stuff that I'm doing in my executive coaching practice is trying to steal ideas from people like yourself so I could learn and grow, so I could help my team learn and grow. Well, part of the mantra of the book, you didn't say it in those words, but it's what I felt because of your passion for coaching is that we're all each other's teachers and that you're no smarter than, you know, we're all, everybody's smart and nobody's got a monopoly on that. But let me, let me conclude with a few things. One, my friend, Greg Wilds, Greg, if you're watching or listening, I thank you for bringing Matt into my life. Greg played basketball at Harvard. He and I grew up together in the Bloomberg organization for many, many years, and we've been friends ever since. So I really appreciate it. And Matt, you, Matt, what a wonder it is. And thank you so much for coming into my life. You've been in my life and your book, get out and read this book. It, it is an awesome demonstration of success of fulfillment of failure and ultimately of redemption. And Matt, what I love about what you've always done and what you're doing today 
every day you get up and you go to work in the service of someone else's success. Thank you for all the things that you do for everyone you've coached and everyone you taught. Chuck, thank you, man. Uh, I really appreciate it. I, I love, like you said, Greg, thank you, Greg Wilds, for connecting me with Chuck. Um, Chuck, I'm learning from you. Uh, you know, I feel like, you know, I, I'm, I'm, I'm blessed to, uh, to be connected to you, and I look forward to continuing our relationship. Same here, Matt. Thank you so much. And to our listeners, as always, we are 95 episodes into A Climb to the Top. Thank you for all your support. If you are listening to us on Amazon, Spotify, or Apple, or C-Suite Radio, we appreciate that. If you've come in on the YouTube channel, that's great. You can follow us on Instagram. But that is not nearly as important as the great people like Matt Dougherty who bring their incredible generosity and spirit into the world and simply make the world a better place. We are signing off here. Thank you, everyone. Thank you, Matt. And to our listeners, thank you so much. Good night. This podcast is a part of the C-Suite Radio Network. For more top business podcasts, visit c-suiteradio.com.